All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Variant Perceptions Market Outlook Call. My name is Ian, and today I'm joined by Aaron. Throughout the call, if you have any questions, please hit the Q&A button, and we'll try to answer it during the call. Just as a reminder, we'll post a recording and transcript of this call on our portal very shortly after it's done. I'll now hand it over to Aaron to kick off today's, to, to kick off today's discussion. Yeah, thank you, Ian. Welcome, everyone. I uh, appreciate that um, you know many clients are on holiday or have been on holiday, so might not have had all the time to uh, read all the work that we've put, been putting out. Um, Tian's also on holiday in China at the moment. Um, he's given us some quite interesting color, actually, on how to interpret some of our tools in China. Um, obviously, that's a big uh, topic that's top of mind for a lot of our clients. Um, but really, we just wanted to use this call uh, to discuss some of the key moves in our tools over the last month, um, just go through some of the nuance as well and how we're interpreting our tools, where we stand, um, and then talk through some um, recurring questions that are coming up from clients. Um, so just moving on to the, uh, the first slide, um, really the, um, you know, we, we've said this in, you know, quite a lot of our uh, recent pieces and some of the videos as well. We've done a huge amount of work over the last couple of months to you know, really better understand how to interpret our tools in the context of portfolio positioning. Um, you know, the mix of tactical and cyclical models, I think, served us really, really well through 2022, um, where we're able to get on the right side of both equity and bond markets, um, and even commodity markets as well. Um, whereas this year, we saw our recession signal trigger in the US, um, but our interpretation of going risk off was not correct initially. Um, and so, you know, digging into the reasons why we try to understand how to previous inflation recessions work. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I think we came to the conclusion that the sequencing from leading to coincident to lagging um, is not fundamentally broken, but it's more just the timing and the magnitude does tend to differ in these higher inflation recessions compared to disinflationary recessions that we're kind of all used to. Um, and so, you know, just on the basis of some of our tools that we're, you know, that are evolving, we are seeing more evidence that the sequencing is playing out. Um, and at the same time, we're pretty comfortable at least just kind of handicapping some of the um, soft landing narratives, you know, that are centered more on kind of the rolling recession thesis or, um, you know, optically resilient labor markets. Um, but, you know, ultimately, we expect to be wrong if, um, you know, leading sectors are allowed to recover quite strongly before the rest of the kind of slower moving sectors deteriorate. Um, and at present, we think this is still a pretty low risk scenario. Um, and still, we expect the sequencing to still behave, um, you know, in line with uh, our leading indicators. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we made a big deal about um, kind of the operating leverage thesis where, um, you know, ultimately profit margins have been kind of propped up by, you know, effectively by fiscal and household sectors that have dissaved. Um, these tailwinds are starting to fade. Uh, we discussed that in our latest leading indicator watch. Um, although I would, um, the, just here on slide two, the bottom chart, um, something that is quite interesting to me, at least, um, we're seeing a lot more um, LPPL bubble triggers. Um, and just as a reminder for clients, um, LPPL um, is pretty much the single best bubble crash detection system that we've got. Um, you know, we've done a huge amount of testing on other systems and LPPL by far was ranked as, um, you know, the most useful, you know, most generalizable as well, uh, not just in a particular segment of equities, but across across the board. Um, and, you know, I think we've done, we've also done some um, initial testing on some of the single name LPPLs as well um, and starting to aggregate that up to a higher level. And that looks really, really powerful. But, you know, we're starting to see, you know, at least cell signals trigger in areas like semiconductors. Uh, we saw home builders very recently, um, though at the same time, I would highlight that, um, you know, we are seeing some buy signals in areas of capital scarcity like energy that 
uh, at least give us a bit more conviction on how to position for um, you know for the rest of the year. Um, so moving on to the next slide, um, you know, just starting with China because this has cropped up in a lot of um, recent meetings. And again, just to add some some color from Tian, um, you know, a few weeks ago we saw um, uh, effectively our autocorrelation buy signals trigger in Chinese equities. Um, you know, this is kind of our quantified measure of capitulation. Um, and on the cyclical side, um, we still believe in this excess liquidity story. Um, and excess liquidity is, you know, effectively rising quite strongly in China. You know, this is the top left chart here, um, whereas, you know, the rest of the world is seeing excess liquidity, um, you know, still very, very negative. It's not really turning up. Um, and just as a reminder, excess liquidity, we're measuring that through narrow money, minus inflation, minus growth. Um, so here I've just got the growth and inflation LEIs in the top charts, um, and they're still at pretty low levels, just the red lines there. They're not really showing evidence of a sustained upturn. Um, so, you know, on that premise, when we see additional kind of liquidity support from the Chinese authorities, uh, we just don't think the real economy has capacity to absorb that. And so that kind of marginal dollar that, you know, enters the uh, the economy will actually instead just flow to markets and, and you know, the, the natural recipient is Chinese equities. Um, so, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what we've, um, at least what Tian's found out in, in China, I think the consensus kind of narrative on the ground is, is still very bearish on the growth outlook. Um, you know, people are still very skeptical about the economy getting stimulated, you know, particularly when local government finances are not in good shape. You know, I've just got here the bottom uh, middle chart. Um, you know, still land sale revenues are still very, very weak. You know, it's lagging the run rates of previous years. Um, you know, profits themselves have taken a huge beating. People do expect the deflation, uh, you know, the, you know, in terms of the CPI, PPI prints, they are in deflation territory. And I think the key thing is that, you know, that is real. People uh, do expect prices to, uh, you know, don't expect it to return to inflation very quickly. Um, and at the same time, you know, you're seeing indicators for the labor markets, you know, really deteriorating. You know, we've got the kind of unemployment survey here, the recruitment index that leads the actual unemployment rate. Um, you know, it's telling you that there are structural problems in place. A lot of people are kind of believing in that. And there's little incentive for, you know, from the corporate's perspective to actually expand. So I think, you know, from an investment kind of contrarian standpoint, I think this does actually give us a bit more conviction um, that the excess liquidity story is set to play out. Um, you know, we know, and we've got this up on the portal, that investor positioning is still pretty light in China. Um, you know, a lot of money is left um, and it's unlikely to come back pretty quickly. And we know that the market itself is very sensitive to, uh, you know, that kind of initial liquidity impulse relative to, you know, fundamental conditions. Um, we did also mention, I think, um, in our capital cycle highlights that uh, China and Hong Kong ETFs have been climbing higher in the ranks. Um, you know, obviously the linkage from capital cycle to, um, you know, fundamentals behavior and, you know, the impact on share prices is a bit more limited relative to Western markets. Obviously, you know, the roles of SE SOEs and, you know, some of the structural issues as well that may prevent some of the capital starved industries from realizing the full benefits of a cap of a earnings upturn. Uh, but I, I think it's more just to confirm really that the, the supply side is, is quite starved across many industries. Um, and I think this really does, um, I think this is really how a framework does shine, right? Where we have the tactical, the cyclical and the structural where, you know, going back to, you know, say November, 2022, um, you know, I think what was really helpful that we flagged to clients was, a, you know, our LPPL um, crash signal triggered across Chinese equities that was heading into the 20th party Congress. 
Um, so, you know, outright, we were saying, you know, this is a good time to buy tactically. Um, but at the same time, we said that the cyclical picture is not really aligned. Um, and we didn't really want to get ahead of ourselves, you know, when the, the narrative at the time was extremely bullish on the reopening uh, story. But, um, you know, ultimately, we deferred to our recession model that was still active in China. And it was only really in April that that turned off. Um, and so now we're starting to see some of the cyclical pieces line up. Um, and at the same time, some of these tactical signals are triggering. It gives us a better, um, you know, better chance to um, have a, a multi-month rally in Chinese equities. Um, so that's that's pretty much how we're um, viewing the Chinese equity story at the uh, at the moment. Yeah, this, this is interesting stuff, Aaron. And I got to say, it's been fascinating seeing how uh, Tian's personal observations have reinforced some of the um, ideas we're getting from our tools and data. So one thing I, I'm curious about, though, is what the key signals are that you're keeping an eye out for to determine whether or not China's recovery is gaining traction? Yeah, yeah, thanks, And I think, um, yeah, this is something that is, um, you know, very important. And I think, you know, to the extent that, you know, we're very aware that Western media coverage of China is, um, you know, not going to be complete and it's not necessarily timely. Um, and I think this is where, um, you know, we do want to be a bit systematic in this, but at the same time, I think we... Um, you know, ultimately, we are going to defer to our tools that we, you know, our core tools that we have, you know, our, our top middle chart there, our growth LEI should start to, you know, we would like to see evidence that that is starting to turn up, because that will give us conviction that, you know, some of the domestic green shoots that we're seeing, things like, you know, shadow finance growth, um, you know, at least some of the property data is starting to stabilize, there's no upturn yet. But ultimately, if there is an upturn, we want to see that come through in some of the leading indicators where, you know, the external piece is still, there are still heavy headwinds, right? Um, and so China has been a story of big external headwinds, domestic tailwinds, not strong enough yet. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think we have to appreciate that policy can kind of front run this, right? Um, and so, you know, to the extent that, you know, we see evidence that, you know, kind of COVID style consumption vouchers start to get distributed, I think that would be a very big turning point in the, the policy uh, mix. Um, you know, whether or not that's going to happen, I think is quite unlikely, uh, because I think the wider context is still in place of decoupling from the rest of the world. I think that's really important to remember. So, you know, in terms of that, that kind of broad mix of kind of policy versus, um, you know, actually seeing that, um, you know, actually bear out in our tools, um, you know, I think ultimately it is balanced. But, um, you know, at the present, I think that's kind of how we're thinking about you know, tracking these signposts. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately to the extent that we are still seeing kind of these you know, very bearish narratives on Chinese growth, um, I think paradoxically that is actually quite good for the um, the bullish equity story because of the, the excess liquidity concept. Uh, moving, moving on just to um, uh, the, the US recession story, um, I think really the key, I, I'm not going to repeat everything from our, um, for our recent thematic report, um, I think really what I want to emphasize um, in, on this slide is just the role of fiscal, where um, I think the mistake that we made earlier in the year was perhaps overemphasizing the importance of the credit cycle, um, which was you know, significantly deteriorating for sure. It looked um, you know, extremely consistent with the start of recessions um, in history. But um, the fiscal impulse, I think, has helped offset that. You know, the middle chart, we're just tracking uh, effectively the, the fiscal um, impulse as a second derivative measure, effectively just budget balance the, um, the kind of second derivative of that. Um, and then the credit piece has obviously been very negative. 
Uh, but you can kind of see the net impact has meant that the overall impulse in the economy has been too negative, actually. Um, so, you know, in our thematic report, we looked at this kind of aggregated view of, of the role of fiscal versus, um, you know, profit margins, the collective levy decomposition. So effectively an accounting identity where households and governments are on one side and the corporates on the other side where, um, you know, effectively when households and governments are dissaving, it means that the corporate sector is able to capture more of the, the income. So in other words, margins are supported, they can increase. Um, so obviously the these tailwinds are starting to fade, right, where the fiscal impulse is starting to peak. Um, and, you know, I, I think the the actual tailwind itself, the fading of that tailwind is perhaps a bit slower than we thought. Um, and, you know, I think it does remind me actually just of a report we put out a few months ago where um, we discussed 1966 and 67 as, you know, what we flagged as the only genuine soft landing where LEI's leading indicators were absolutely terrible. Uh, but you didn't have a recession in the US. Um, and what we identified there was that the role of policy was absolutely critical um, because you had things like Reg Q in place, um, which meant that you know the Fed was hiking and it was hiking quite rapidly, but the impacts of these hikes wasn't fully kind of transmissible into the real economy. Um, and at the same time, the Fed uh, was able to pivot immediately, um, kind of at the first signs of downside growth, um, risks like start to appear. Um, because inflation wasn't that high. But then, you know, fast forward a few years, 1969-70, uh, Fed cut later into the recession. Um, and, you know, the role of fiscal at the time in 66-67 uh, was extremely stimulative. You had the Great Society programs, you had the Vietnam War that was getting financed. And, you know, obviously that created a lot of jobs linked to defense spending. Um, so that helped to offset some of the kind of burgeoning weakness in the private sector um, and so equity markets at the time, they were able to kind of rally through to new highs after kind of an initial drawdown with the uh, kind of lead LEI dip. Um, so, you know, I'd say that, um, you know, with these kind of uh, historical analogs in place and kind of being respectful of policy, you know, this time round, um, you know, ultimately, we still think Fed is aligned to this high inflation roadmap, 1969-70, um, where Fed is unable to pivot very quickly. Um, and fiscal, and therefore, it means fiscal has to have an even more stimulative role because the household sector is also retrenching, right? Um, you know, uh, we we made a point that um, student loan repayments are going to restart. I think it's in October, um, but I think interest is starting to accrue very very shortly. Um, and then things like our retail sales leading indicator is starting to dip quite heavily now. So, you know, to that extent, I think um, you know we still are happy and comfortable to kind of bet on our LEI roadmap. Um, and, you know, ultimately, um, we have to be mindful that the Fed can step in, um, you know, already has with the regional banking crisis, it has a mandate to protect financial stability. So, you know, to that extent, it's unlikely that we're going to see kind of a, a system wide deleveraging this time around. Uh, but it's more that some areas are going to be allowed to deflate. And I think that's the, the key thing that we're highlighting is that there are going to be explicit winners and losers this time around, rather than kind of a, a GFC style collapse. Um, and I just wanted to mention on bonds, um, because um, this has kind of been a key point of contention with um, uh, with clients, particularly with some of the supply-demand dynamics. I, I did actually want to highlight, I was looking through some of the tactical models yesterday. Um, so the, the bottom right chart here is um, our, uh, um, our analog model for the 10-year yield. Um, as a reminder, that's kind of using dynamic time warp. It's looking at the based on recent price action, how closely does this match historical patterns and, you know, what's the forward performance uh, looking like? And so um, it's actually decisively flipped to um, towards supporting higher yields from here. 
Um, whereas, you know, over the last uh, few months or so, we've seen it kind of chop. There's been a kind of a wide mix of, of outcomes. Um, so I say this is, you know, on, on its own, we're not going to trade based solely off this model. Um, however, I do think it does align with some of the, you know, the fundamental supply demand dynamics that are going on where, um, you know, extra issuance does need to get absorbed by the private sector while the Fed still kind of reduces its role through QT. Um, you know, foreign demand itself has been pretty mixed. I think Japan has been lighting up a bit, but at the same time, you're getting other buys coming in. Um, so, you know, while lower rate expectations, you know, are the effectively the key catalyst for bonds to rally in a recession. Uh, and again, the timing is linked to, um, you know, effectively labor markets um, cracking. And we think that's kind of a backloaded stress. Um, you could still get some term premium getting injected in the kind of the shorter term as the supply demand mix shifts in the interim. So, you know, in terms of how we're timing this and flagging it to clients on, you know, when when could you actually see that yield plunge? Um, this um, this bottom middle chart, I think, is really important to track. It's our Fed easing model where, um, you know, effectively, we've just got a mix of hard and soft data where we're tracking how stressed it is. And we're training that based on historic dates of the first cuts in the in the Fed cycle. Um, so historically, when this probability starts really surging, um, and you know a key level that we're tracking is sixty five percent, sixty five seventy. That's actually that actually lines up really well with um, you know rate expectations actually plummeting, and that's when uh, duration rallies. So you know we're not quite there yet, and so I'd still say that um, you know for the time being, I think. Um, you know, I think we we are a bit more aligned to the kind of the the inflation link story um, rather than kind of the the nominal story. Yeah. So just on that quickly, Aaron, um, with respect to the inflation link story, um, about a month ago we wrote a piece about buying tips. So how does that call square with this observation that duration upside is limited in high inflation recession scenario? Yeah, I think that's um yeah, that's that's really important because um I think ultimately this is a this is where the time horizon I think becomes really important right and being explicit about that because um you know we wrote the tips piece with the with an eye on the next cycle and this was more of a structural longer term allocation where you know ultimately we think break even pricing is still subject to some upsides um you know we think it's tips at least are, are a good allocation to park cash um you know with some optionality to the upside um, you know, ultimately, our structural thesis is that we're heading into an age of scarcity where ultimately we expect inflation to kind of settle or, you know, operate at a at a much higher level relative to the 2010s. Um, and at the same time, we're expecting fiscal dominance to really come in and effectively keep real rates um, quite low as they need to work towards some of their uh, strategic objectives like decoupling from the rest of the world, decarbonization and so forth. Um, and we know that active fiscal, you know, we've seen this in multiple cycles, it always coincides with higher inflation regimes, right? Um, so we do still think that there's going to be upward pressure on nominal rates after the kind of recession scare gets priced in. Um, however, we think from a real rates perspective, there, there is room for that to, you know, drift lower and stay low in the in the new cycle. So, you know, I think the, the high inflation recession roadmap, um, that's useful for kind of nominals, um, you know, Fed can effectively hold higher for longer um, because money illusion and all these various other things mean that the the actual stress and the infection to the labor market piece uh, takes a bit longer to play out. So I think, you know, whilst that kind of goes on, um, it means that the upside for duration, as you say, is, is pretty limited, right? So I think, you know, on a cyclical basis, you know, the way I'd kind of position this in a portfolio would mean that, you know, I'd still actually carry quite a, you know, 
pretty small overweight in nominal US treasuries to play for that uh, recession scare scenario, but with a view to rotate out quite quickly once that gets priced in. And, you know, all the while, I'd be happy to hold kind of a structural core allocation um, towards tips. Um, hopefully that makes sense, um, just in terms of separating the time horizons. Um, just conscious of, uh, of time here. Um, and uh, hopefully we can start to answer some client questions. But uh, really on this slide, I, I just wanted to emphasize that, um, you know, some of the, the narratives that have been coming out about, you know, rolling recession risks and so forth. Um, and, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, maybe some leading sectors like manufacturing and housing, uh, you know, you are starting to see a little bit of bottoming there, right? You're starting to see some upside surprises in, you know, data like building permits, um, you know, in manufacturing, a lot of people have been pointing towards um, like the new orders to inventories ratio. Uh, that's starting to turn and typically does lead to headline ISM um, turning a bit higher with a, you know, one to three month lag. Um, but I, I think I really wanted to emphasize here that, um, you know, we do see evidence of broad-based stress. You know, it's not just in these leading sectors at the moment, you know, the labor market data that we're tracking, um, you know, we're focusing on, you know, layoff announcements and so forth and how that's transmitting into initial claims, continuing claims. It's still behaving in line with the start of recessions. Um, it's just that it's not enough stress really for the, for the market to, to freak out. Uh, but staying with manufacturing, I think one thing that I did want to emphasize was that this, this kind of top middle chart where, um, you know, effectively, a, a lot of people are looking at the new orders inventory ratio, but I think that's not really the full picture because I think with um, manufacturing inventories, whilst they are getting low, generally over previous cycles, when manufacturing inventories are very low, it typically leads to a restocking impulse some point down the line, right, which is bullish for activity. Um, but I think that's... Um, there's quite a, a naive view at the moment where um, you have to look at the incentives of these manufacturers, right? Manufacturers have very little incentive to restock right now, while customer inventories are still pretty bloated, right? Retailers still need to work through some of their in inventory gluts. Um, you know, consumer um, spending has been somewhat resilient, but as I mentioned, you know, the, and I've got it here, just the retail sales leading indicator top right chart. Um, it says that, you know, effectively there is some hard data stress to come linked to the US consumer. Um, and so to that extent, you know, manufacturers, um, you know, still have, you know, in dollar terms, their inventories still have room to fall. I think there is still room for downside, even though you might see some of the soft kind of survey data like ISM pick up. Um, and so I think, you know, when we looked at, um, you know, previous cycles, when you do see kind of these temporary blips from a low level up to 50 and, and beyond, um, you know, there, there are times when it actually goes to a lower low. And generally that's been when, you have hard LEI um, deterioration. So, you know, things like real M1, it's a pretty good proxy for, for hard data stress. Generally, when that's very negative and you see ISM kind of climb above 50, it doesn't last long and it tends to be more of a, a red herring. So I would just say that some of these kind of real world, kind of the, the divergence between hard and soft is still playing out. I wouldn't get too carried away with some of the soft data. But having said this, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, with housing at least, you know, there is hard data um, kind of a, there is evidence of of an upturn there, but at the same time, I'd say that it's it's a bit difficult. Where I guess you know, in, in terms of the the U.S. housing market dynamic, obviously a lot of um, mortgages are in place for you know thirty plus years, um, so the rate sensitivity is, is obviously not as high relative to other economies. Uh, but the, also the key difference in this cycle is that home building is actually a capital scarce sector. Um, this time around, you know, historically, home building has been pretty capital abundant. They kind of get ahead of themselves. But, 
you know, given the starting point of big structural underbuilding through the 2010s, um, it means that actually home builders this time around are acting a bit more um, rationally. Um, so supply is a bit more constrained. Um, so it does suggest that, you know, actually there's probably less downside for house prices this time around and construction activity. Um, but I would still challenge the consensus narrative, which is that, um, you know, how the housing market recession is over. I, th I don't think we're there yet because, you know, a lot of people are looking at things like inventory starting to clear again. Um, but I still think that, you know, looking at construction layoffs, for instance, they are picking up. You know, there is some volatility in these summer months when layoffs do tend to be a bit, uh, a bit all over the place. But I think that that is a trend that we that we are seeing. And, you know, the mix of hard and soft tells us that, you know, on balance, I don't think the housing upturn is too soon to call for a, for a housing upturn and that being the savior um, for the rest of the economy. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, we're, we're keeping a really close eye on um, on the damage potential from, um, you know, effectively other sectors, right, that are capital abundant. Um, you know, historically, this is when the excess gets built up. Um, you know, and I ran, um, you know, I keep falling back on the capital cycle, but, you know, I, I ran some of the capital cycle variables going back to kind of the 1970s. This was, again, the data is not great. You have to use kind of BEA sector level data. Um, but you see the same things happen time and time again, where, um, you know, things like airlines, for instance, you went through a huge boom period in the 1960s where you had the kind of commercial jets come into four. Uh, but then, you know, through the 70s, um, these guys, you know, the, the share prices, at least for the indices, saw a pretty sharp drawdown. And it's I think it is still consistent with this idea that recessions do mark changes in, in leadership. Um, and so having said that, we have seen some excess clear from some of the leaders like, you know, finance and tech. Um, but our view is that there is still more to come. And, you know, private credit um, has been a really key area of focus for us. Um, obviously, the, the, it's, you know, the, the trade itself is a bit hard to express. Um, but I think ultimately the timing of when that starts to pay off, like shorting leverage loans, um, it is effectively when these negative operating leverage effects do come into the, um, into the fore, where, you know, just on the bottom left chart, I've just got um, a, a chart from uh, Michael Mobusa, where um, he shows that, you know, changes in operating margin are the greatest around recessions, you know, both at the start and at the end when you kind of go into early cycle. Um, and these drive the biggest valuation changes in analyst models, right? And this is why you see the greatest earnings misses around these big turning points. So I still think, you know, ultimately, we probably do need to do a bit of work on a bottom-up basis to really identify on a single name level, um, you know, where are the, uh, you know, most egregious excesses that are not being captured by um, market expectations at the moment. Um, but, you know, on a broader basis, I'd say, say that given our thesis that labor market um, stress gets backloaded in a higher inflation recession and the fact that consumer-linked sectors are not really pricing in downside, I would say that that's kind of the um, the, the damage that's left to to occur through the um, through the economy. Well, then really quickly, Aaron, I think just the the million dollar question then is you know tying it all together. If our recession thesis does play out as you described, what's the highest conviction trade you would implement to take advantage of it? Yeah, I think I, th <laughs> I think it's really difficult because I think um, you know in our reports, I think we have, and you know in our videos themselves, I think. Um, you, you, you know, as clients, you probably tracked that, you know, our conviction levels are not extremely high right now for any particular area. I think it's really difficult to have a lot of conviction in, in, um, you know, given our roadmap, um, you know, classic things like Euro dollar trades, you know, playing for Fed cuts, um, you know, they tend to work well in disinflationary recessions and the timing is more obvious, you know, feedback loops kicking earlier, 
the operating leverage effects kick in at the beginning. You know, you get the kind of negative non-farm payrolls print immediately. Uh, but, you know, this time around, it's not the same, right? You have backloaded stress. Um, you have, uh, you know, the steepness obviously are carrying very poorly. Um, I would say that, you know, in terms of expressing that view, I still think, you know, yield curve caps are quite interesting given the inversion of the forwards, but um, ultimately it's going to give you less upside. Um, you know, I mentioned that leverage loans, you know, that was um, a big area of focus for us, a big area of excess that's not really cleared at all. It's, you know, it's, from from my perspective, it is the greatest mismatch between market pricing and um, and fundamentals, really. Um, but the trade is not obvious, right? Um, it doesn't carry well. And I think, you know, it goes back to that quote, um, you know, the road to hell is paved with positive carry. Um, so I think, you know, with things like leverage loans, obviously it's linked to the floating rate um, uh, space and then you get a spread on top of that. So, you know, a lot of these things are yielding still, you know, 9%, 10%, 11% plus. Um, so taking the other side of that is, is difficult, but I think it's more of a feature uh, than a bug. So you've you've almost got to, um, you know, get a bit more selective where, um, you know, what we try to highlight is areas of software where that links really nicely with the capital cycle um, because it sets that kind of backdrop, I think, for key underperformers going through into, um, you know, that recession scare when that happens. Um, but I think we ultimately, we do probably need to do a bit of work, as I mentioned, on the operating leverage piece and really get drill down to the kind of single name level. Um, you know, we've started to do a bit of initial work right on kind of the cattle cycle and crowding. Um, you know, crowding, uh, just for my clients, is kind of our measure to identify stocks that, you know, are most at risk from a flip in investor positioning. Um, you know, Ian, you wrote the white paper on that, right, where, you know, we combine inputs on, uh, you know, things like fast money, analyst EPS expectations. Um, so I think that's, um, that's a good starting point, I think, for, um, you know, just kind of harvesting kind of alpha along the capital cycle where you know capital cycle is a slow moving piece right and you tend to get uh, a lot of vol around that so i think you know i think we, we we have to stick to what we think works best um i think you know some of these kind of headline trades that a lot of the gurus come out with um i think it's really difficult this time around um and i think you know in terms of the private credit area i think that is something we want to focus on and something that's um uh, you know, probably going to be the area that gets upset, that's going to upset the most people. Um, so I think, um, you know, we're we're pretty uh, tight on time at the moment. Um, you know, just on this final slide, I just wanted to quickly highlight a few things, you know, things like um, Sweden and South Korea data, we are starting to see incrementally better signs there. Um, it's a similar story to that rolling recession thesis that I kind of laid out where, um, you know, things like Sweden manufacturing, um, you know, that is turning from some of the survey data and it does tend to have a good lead on things like Eurozone um, production. Um, so there is evidence of recovery in, you know, from a low level, um, I've got to stress that um, they are happening in kind of select areas. But, you know, our view is very much that the breadth of LEI deterioration across the world um, is still yet to play out. And so to the extent that, you know, some of the incrementally better signs in some of the smaller open economies um, you know, to, you know, on the balance, it's, it's not really going to stop the, the rest of the world from kind of falling into a kind of synchronized downturn. Um, and I would say as well, you know, labor market data and other, and other economies, you know, we've looked at this a lot of times, it can be quite lagging. Um, and it, sometimes it's just inaccurate. Um, you know, things like in Germany, there's a, uh, the Kurzarbeit program, which allows employees to reduce working hours. So you'll see that happen in kind of, 
labor productivity falling. And, you know, that's what we've seen in the US as well, but it's not going to show up in layoffs data. Um, so that tends to be a lot more lagging, you know, at the very last moment uh, when, you know, firms can no longer tolerate, um, you know, excess labor, that's when they'll fire. But then you'll have a lot of hard data stress already before that, that markets can price in. Um, so I think, you know, from, from an investment perspective, I'll just highlight to clients that, you know, capital cycle is something that's, you know, really important in terms of the the kind of the country level um, ideas that we're starting to flesh out, you know, in DM, at least, you know, Japan, I think is a really nice hunting ground for single name ideas, uh, both, uh, you know, at the single name level, but also from an allocation perspective. Um, and it's ultimately just a case of waiting for some of the business cycle indicators um, uh, to turn up. So I, I think I'll wrap up the, uh, the presentation there. I think um, maybe Ian, if you could uh, I guess just give us, um, you know, you've been responsible for putting up some of these single top stock tools up on the portal. Um, do you just want to give clients a flavor of, you know, what's next in the pipeline for us? Um, you know, you've been working on some of the aggregation stuff to help, you know, not only single name stock pickers, but also help, you know, multi-asset clients that can see some of these emerging trends in the tech level. Yeah, definitely. So I can just do a brief update here. Essentially, we've received a variety of feedback from both clients and coworkers expressing interest in some sort of tool that aggregates our equity factors to the ETF or, sec or sector level. So I'm happy to share that this project is now underway, and hopefully it'll be finished in the next couple of weeks. Upon completion, users of our portal uh, should be able to see factors such as capital cycle, fast money, crowding, and a whole bunch of other things that are you know kind of VP specific um, for a wide range of universes. So whether you're interested in the S&P 500 Energy ETF, APAC Automakers, the MSCI Eurocent Index, or anything else, you'll be able to use this tool to interact with relevant data and explore potential new trade ideas. So as always, when this tool does go live, uh, please feel free to send us any and all feedback that comes to mind as you begin to use it. At the end of the day, our goal really is just to create useful and actionable products for our clients. And really, the best way to do that is just to hear directly from you about what works well and what can be improved upon. So I think that's that's what's coming up for us in terms of uh, new product development. And then, yeah, just looking at the, um, it seems as though we have no questions um, from any of the participants remaining. So I think I'll just hand it back to Aaron then to wrap things up for us. Yeah, great. Thanks, Ian. I think, um, yeah, that's a useful update. I think I'm, you know, very, very much looking forward to seeing that kind of um, aggregation tool. You know, from my perspective, I was kind of staring every day um, look at the single stock screener just seeing, you know, incrementally energy names are getting thrown up to the top, right? And then, uh, you know, we dug into it and saw some tactical buy signals. So I think, you know, to the extent that, you know, people don't have time to look at it every day, right? Just getting a sense of, you know, where we stand today and then the kind of the delta um, over, you know, last few weeks or months or whatever it is. I think that would be really useful. Um, great. Yeah, I think um, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, everyone, for, for dialing in today. Uh, we'll post a recording of the call straight up onto our portal very shortly, um, and the transcript shall uh, follow tomorrow. Thanks very much, and uh, we'll see you next month.